and welcome back to They Made Another One, where each week we discuss an often forgotten installment in a franchise and see if you should check it out for yourself. I'm one of your hosts, Corey, and with me I've got Liam. Uh, remind me who Christopher Plummer plays in this movie. Oh, God. I don't know his name either. It's Harry. Okay, Harry. Right, Reichel. Reichel. It's Harry like Michael Reichel. with an R. Okay, okay, okay. In the words of Reichel. Really? Yeah, it's the first line. If I, if I'm not mistaken, it's the first line he says in the movie, and the delivery was immaculate. I thought it was brilliant. It's right after he Man. just absolutely abuses that woman. Right. Okay. So right. And Mitch. Hello, Corey. Hello, Liam. Hello, Chaz. Yeah. Shout out to. Uh, okay. So this is Spotify Wrapped Day. So really quick, shout out to Chaz, and shout out to um. Oh man, I'm gonna egg on my face here. I'm just going to commit to the bit. Shout out to Let's Rewind to the Dawn of Time. You know who you are? You know who you are. Shout out to everybody who has been listening to them in another one uh, all year and since we started. And even if you just started, thanks for checking us out. We've been seeing those numbers roll in. And that's been really fun. So happy Spotify wrap day a week ago. Shout and, out to uh, Kyle, making sure our podcast is uh, at the same place that the best Ghoulies movie is in the franchise. Is that Ghoulies number, number three? three. Yeah. That's right. Th- thank you, Kyle. Thank you, everybody. And, uh, you know, uh, we're going to keep making them. So if you keep listening, great. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, what we've got as a as a gift for you is a very Canadian movie uh, for us, uh, some very Canadian podcasters <laughs> by yeah, virtue is, of living there. Are, do you know, Corey, is is uh, most of our listenership in Canada or, or are we no. America guys? So this most- is not not really a gift for them at all. No, it's mostly a gift for us. Uh, a cool like sixty-ish percent of our listenership is in the United States, according to the statistics I have available to me, and the rest of the world makes up the remaining forty percent. Yeah, our friends in Canada are kind of assholes. It should be way more. Yeah, I'm just kidding. I'm just <laughs> honestly. Kidding. <laughs> where are you guys? Figure it out. Anyway, my friends don't even listen to the show. God. Um, but, it's uh, just Kyle. He's the one Canadian listener. It's just Kyle. Thank you, Kyle. Um, and so we've got a Canadian episode. However, um, I think it's going to be an interesting episode for a lot of reasons. Um, we watched The Silent Partner. A nice little hit of that 70s neo-noir. I wonder who picked it. <laughs> sort of a heist movie. Yeah, this could only really be uh, one guy. And of course, naturally, when we pick a... Uh, a classier movie like this it also bends the rules mostly in that um it's a remake of a movie based on a book which to be fair counts however mm-hmm. it's it's december it's simply having a wonderful christmas time and uh Ugh. mitch i gotta ask you a quick question pal yeah honestly fire your broadsides <laughs> this movie's got some pretty iconic christmas related imagery I'll admit. However, I would say it's Christmas for about about 50% of this movie. So I would like you to justify to the room how this counts for Christmas month. Well, it is difficult to answer that question before we get to plot rundown. Um, I think you can manage. So I'll answer it, I think, in part. I selected this movie as like a, as a Christmas movie because I think it's kind of like a Christmas-themed thing thriller to a degree like there's there's lots of like things that remind me of christmas like malls 
packed with with people like shopping and um i think after seeing this movie you'll probably never look at like a mall santa claus the same way ever again uh there's there's enough christmas going on that i feel like you could slip it in in the same way that you could slip in say die hard um whether or not that's a christmas movie is, is hotly contested uh and i think the same is here but i think the fact that this movie is partially set during christmas time adds a unique flavor to the movie and i think it makes it justifiable here um like if you're well, if you're looking for something that isn't like the bishop's wife or I don't know, it's a wonderful life. Or if you're looking for something a bit darker, a bit more uh a bit more Elliot Gould. Yeah, a bit more uh yeah, laconic and dark and uh and and sort of quickly paced, uh this is this is the one. Well, I, I tell you what, Mitch, I, I'm on your side here. I think this is more appropriate as a Christmas movie than it is like for the podcast just in general. So I think if we're going to take any issue with it, it, it shouldn't be the December thing. Um, I can't believe I'm being turned against It's a, it's a remake of a Danish movie, though, from the no, 1969. No, I, think, I think it applies in both respects, but I just think if we're going to like be picking bones here, I think the bone should be that it's it's like... It is a remake of this movie that like no one has heard of that doesn't have a Wikipedia page. You know what I mean? From like the 60s. But yep. it is clearly a movie that has like Santa Claus in it, Christmas music. So it's much more a Christmas movie to me than it is uh, a remake or a sequel fitting for this podcast. Liam, even I can't I believe you've turned the tables on me like in this. Both I can't cases. believe you've done this. Yeah, I'd say like it, it is obviously like an obscure uh, I can't movie believe I'm that, losing this argument. that came before it. But I think it's justifiable and also like i know you just want me to say this i i like this movie and i wanted an excuse to watch it on the show so (laughs) i made it work that's fair dude it's our show we can do what we want Uh, i think we've made it clear that our because our gift for the spotify wrapped people is to do a, a oh, Canadian by the way, shout movie. out to Jade, Spotify wrapped number four. That's yeah, just coming in now. Like a, right. a, a great Canadian movie, yeah. And Jade, as as your gift for number four, I know you were clamoring for the silent partner. Like, it's just like, on this podcast, we just do a shitload of navel-gazing anyway, so we might as well just uh, keep at it. Um, I, I actually thought, Mitch, that this was like a, a sequel spinoff um similar to u.s marshals and the fugitive i thought that this was a a (laughs) sequel spinoff to uh the long goodbye which i I also know nothing about but because you had told me um watch them together uh, i figured that uh this must have been like related in some way and so after i finished (laughs) i didn't get to the long goodbye and now like i'm like okay i guess it's not a big deal because (laughs) because i looked it up thinking i'd see at the top of the wikipedia page this is like a spiritual successor to the long goodbye like made by the same but it is your loss it is your loss (laughs) <laughs> i just laughed so hard at what liam said you could hear me nearly choke and die live on air <laughs> it's uh it's it's your loss for having not seen the long goodbye because it's a wonderful movie i only recommended it because i think it's like another great sort of 1970s neo-noir vehicle for elliot gould who i think is a wonderful actor and uh he kind of gives a similar performance in terms of aesthetics but the characterization and the character ultimately is is completely different 
Yeah. Um, well, I have a lot. I have a lot of time to get to it. I mean, it's it's not a uh, Corey watches Spike Lee's version of Old Boy before he watches the original <laughs> Old Boy, and like then his future is tainted. You know, no. that's one of right, the worst so. decisions I've made. It- for this show i think yeah so i'm glad i didn't get old boyed here by not watching the long goodbye because i did want to watch it and the cards just didn't fall and so i was a bit relieved to learn that this isn't actually related to it and i can catch up it's it's not but it's i still think it's like an essential movie sure yeah so in the spirit of what i feel is a borderline christmas movie we're gonna keep the christmas to a we're gonna keep the christmas to a relative minimum it hasn't snowed that much it's not quite Christmassy. Frankly, if you gave us too much Christmas at once, we might not make it because we're still recovering mm-hmm. from Home Alone, right? It's like, like too much eggnog. Right. Like, we can't just get all this Christmas at once. So in a way, Mitch, you're doing us a favor. Or I think I'm doing you a favor because it's a great movie as well. Sure, but, but uh... we're easing back. You refuse to want this to be about Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> you motherfucker. <laughs> But we're easing back into the Christmas spirit. But, but honestly, fuck it. You know what? <laughs> honestly, honestly, listener, you know what? Dear listener of ours who we've lauded and praised throughout the beginning of this episode for being uh, such dedicated fans, fuck it. This movie was directed by Daryl Duke. He mostly directed TV shows. It was written by Curtis Hansen, who directed 8 Mile in he's LA a great, Confidential. Well, he, he's a great writer, yeah. He did we're like- getting to the movie kudrowski all right all right <laughs> i was just gonna talk about curtis hansen but that's okay the only hansen i want to talk about bop um this movie is edited by george appleby who edited something called great canadian ghost stories cinematography is by billy williams that. who shot the movie gandhi uh and a movie called 30 is a dangerous age cynthia um, and the music is actually by legendary jazz pianist Oscar Peterson. Yeah. Did you know that he was actually a roommate of Christopher Christopher Plummer years before? No, I didn't. Oh, not know a roommate, that. but but a college like they knew each other in school. Like this dude was down with Duke Ellington. Yeah. And he did the music for the Silent Partner. Yeah. Incredible scenes, and uh, we got the cast here. Of course, Elliot Gould. Christopher Plummer, Canadian icon. Susanna York, Celine Lomez, Michael Kirby, Sean Sullivan, Ken Pogue, Jonathan Candy, Gail Doms, Michael Donahue, and John Kerr. The gang. What a lineup. Yeah. Incredible. Also, like, RIP Christopher Plummer, like one of one of the recent goats to have kind of left us not too long ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is, I think, one of his like one of his great performances. I do love I him. Think, yeah, I do love him. Um, I don't know many old actors, but I guess I'm more likely to know you if you stay alive long enough to be in modern movies. And uh, I became aware of him by name not until like his perhaps penultimate film, Knives Out. You guys seen Knives Out? Yeah, yeah. Oh. he's a voice actor in Skyrim. Like he's he, he man got around. <laughs> He did a lot in his 91 years, right? And then I saw him uh, a few months ago in The Sound of Music, and I loved him in that, too. So yeah. really cool to see him at a, a different era, because now I've I've seen him only in 
three different decades. I uh, think. Have you seen and the so Pink Panther cool. movies? Because he's he plays a bit like a bad guy in that. No, but mind I haven't. you, it's for laughs. This one, he's he's frightening. Oh, he's evil in this. <laughs> the one. scariest Santa you'll ever see. And I've I've never seen him not be a good guy, right? Knives yeah. Out and Sound of Music. He's just like such an amazing person. So this was this was really cool. Mm-hmm. He had a great range. John Candy too, who we were just talking about last week. Yeah, I do love John Candy. Um, such a weird Home Alone. Just sort of such a weird early bit for him to be doing this movie. Would he have been in, on SNL at this time? I have no idea. I, I have, have not no an idea. SNL aficionado in like any meaningful Me way whatsoever. But I, I feel like he was like in that late seventies brigade. Um, that and then so, Mitch. For anybody who doesn't know who Elliot Gould is, <sighs> I'm delighted you asked. Please, uh, Elliot Gould. One of the goats. I mean, he said of the silent partner that this is the best script he had seen since The Touch, which is a Ingmar Bergman movie that he was in. He got around. I mean, he yeah, worked. That's with... where the song "You Got the Touch" came from, right? I. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even going to humor that. Um, yeah. So Elliot Gould got around in the '70s. He was a big star. He was in a, a handful of Robert Altman movies. I think at least three, uh, three that I've seen: uh, Mash, The Long Goodbye. And California Split, yeah. Um, California Split, wildly underrated. Um, but the long goodbye, we've already talked about it. You can't go wrong with it. Elliot Gould, he had sort of like a niche for playing kind of like sad losers that you might like underestimate, but that are also like have like a brilliant side and sort of like a um very like charming and likable aspects too. And it's almost as if he's like sleepwalking through a lot of his movies or his, uh, but I mean that in the best way. Uh, I love he's his te- the most regular man. An actor yeah. can manage to believably feel. I love his technique. Very seventies. And I, like, I don't think that like we have anybody today who has like a similar sort of style, but he's a, a great actor and he's done so much. I mean, more recently uh, he was, he was in the oceans movies. Um, including like the the recent sort of uh reboot uh but yeah guy gets around and he's one of my favorites yeah. so the that's why i fucking kicks ass i i'd never yeah. heard of him before um, oh, this is my so good this is my introduction and i did a bit of reading after the movie um you know i was wondering hey is this guy still alive and he is mm-hmm. um looked peeked around his wikipedia page a bit yeah i hadn't seen like i haven't seen those oceans movies so i don't think i've seen anything modern that he's in even though um i managed to catch up to christopher Plummer, but i did find something amazing have you guys heard of his son jason no no if you go to uh jason's uh wikipedia page there's a picture of him and it is it is one of the best things i've ever seen here i I sent it to you guys in the chat listeners it's the one on his wikipedia if you go to jason gold (laughs) and the picture The picture is Elliot Gould and Barbara Streisand smiling at each other, and Elliot is holding (laughs) young Jason as a literal infant baby, you know, has to be like sub one years old. (laughs) And the caption says, and this is on Jason Gould's page, it says, Gould, far left with his parents, (laughs) Elliot Gould and Barbara Streisand in 1967. This dude is listed as an American actor and singer on wikipedia born in 1966 and still his picture on wikipedia is from is when of he his was parents. a baby at 1967 <laughs> it is yeah. hilarious kind of, is... kind of a weird unlikely couple too like gould and streisand but 
Shout out to Barbara Streisand yeah. one time. Yeah. I don't think Barbara Streisand gets enough credit. So finally, our podcast is giving no. Her, she doesn't giving also, her due. A great actor, like what's up, Doc? She's what's up, Doc is so fucking good. It's so fucking good. <laughs> Has no business being as good as it is. Again, like one of the great comedies of the seventies. Liam, you should see that movie if you haven't. By the way, yeah, no, I haven't. I haven't seen that. I do. I do know Barbara Streisand though. I've seen some of her movies, um, but I haven't seen that one. Yeah. The Guilt Trip with Seth Rogen, Barbara Streisand classic. What? <laughs> you gotta <laughs> out, Mitch. You act like a fan of Streisand. You gotta see the Guilt Trip, co-starring Seth Rogen. Hmm. Finally, the dream team power couple of Hollywood is here. <laughs> Barbara Streisand and Seth. <laughs> wow. That was good. Do you like Seth Rogen, Mitch? I he's all right. I mean, I don't really care for his movies. Wow, that much. you're disrespecting another great Canadian on this, the Canadian episode of They Made Another. One. <laughs> I'll save my Seth Rogen thoughts for when we uh, eventually do a Seth Rogen movie on this podcast because it has to happen. But right, we'll get there. Yeah, it's gonna be that hot dog movie or whatever. Nah, because that that ain't no sequel or remake. That was a good movie though. Mitch and oh I have my very God. different opinions on. You didn't Seth like Rogen Sausage Party? Movie. I had a good time watching hated it. Hated Sausage Party. I was like. Granted, like, I was not, like, of, like, completely full, like, body and mind when I saw it, but... Um, <laughs> and I, I was in... I was in very full body of mind. I was so excited for that movie. I'll, okay, I'll, get, I'll put the cat out of the bag. I'm a massive Seth Rogen fan. I was more in my, in my younger, like, late teen years. Now I don't keep up with everything that he does, now that he's gotten into, like, producing and stuff. But in, like, the early 2010s to... Uh, like the 2017 <laughs> or so yeah till actually till about the interview i was still on board with the interview but around that time when he started really getting prolific um yeah. I, I watched and kept up with everything he did and he did an interview on howard stern probably in like 2013 oh, or so um howard stern does a lot of great long form interviews and and seth rogan did one and he said in passing that he's working on this movie that's going to have like pixar quality animation about uh grocery store food but it's going to be like r-rated totally vile and it's going to have all these people in it that that are you know in his crew who i also really like and so i was so excited for sausage party from the get-go and uh i was i was very disappointed that's 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 all that is huh i don't know i thought it was like good for a few laughs Fair enough. I can't take that when I when me. I used to rate movies like when I wrote them down. I think I gave it like three and a half stars. Sure. Yeah. All right, Corey, bring us back to earth. I got one more thing to mention that's actually unrelated. <laughs> okay. Uh, Chaz has just brought it to my attention that we are also number five on his girlfriend's top five. Podcasts. Let's fucking go! I love you, Chaz. Chaz is a fucking Damn. hero. <laughs> Spreading the gospel. Do you think they listen together, or is this like? She's just out and about on her own. Maybe he gets her to listen to the episodes that he's not listening to, and then she tells them about him so that yeah. they can, he can get possible. through them twice as fast. It's all possible. We need to hear who... We need to get one more person in his group, uh, in his friend group, in his family, to listen, and then they can each tell us who their favorite host is, and maybe we'll each get a win. Hmm. It's entirely possible. Mm-hmm. What do you guys know about the infamous tax shelter period in Canada between 1975 and 1982? Seeing as I took a class on Canadian film, not a lot. 
<laughs> I, I don't remember. Go, very I didn't much even about get it. that class, so I know even less. You know, Zip Liam. Some of your favorite movies came out of this era. Huh. Well, I, I like think what? they're your favorite what, like movies. Black Christmas. Uh huh. My Bloody Ooh. Valentine. Ooh. Prom night. Oh, I just got My Bloody Valentine on Blu-ray. Maybe yeah. they'll talk about it on the anyway, commentary. So cool. during this sort of infamous period, um, film production was like greatly incentivized in Canada, and it allowed investors to d- deduct about a hundred percent of a hundred percent of their investment from their taxable income. So this eventually led to investors figuring out that it could be much like the movie The Producers, that it could be more profitable if they didn't even release them at at all. Uh, and so as a consequence, a lot of these movies were like meant to be uh shitty or like ex- exploitation movies or movies that were so vile that they would never make a splash which ironically is how like david cronenberg had his start with like shocking movies like uh, oh, rabbit and shivers, shivers. And, and the brood but by then the brood was a bit more prestige because it had like oliver reed in it um sort of legendary boozing and hard drinking guy who absolutely wreaked havoc on the street of, of Toronto when they filmed that movie. There's a great story about him getting like brandy drunk and uh, running up a Toronto street like naked in the winter and getting arrested. Anyway, I'm going to keep going. Um, eventually, like by the time that 1980 came around, uh, it was revealed that at least half of the films that were produced never even made it to, to theaters. And there were about 345 tax shelter films made in this era. Um, so eventually in like 1982, they, they downgraded that tax percent to, to 50%, um, like off of your deductible off of your income. Uh, so there was still like a, a good incentive to do it. And, uh, ironically, like during this time, like this is kind of how like a lot of slashers, uh, were like invented. Like black Christmas was a very early slasher film. You could argue that the Italians did it first with Bay of blood, but, um, sort of foundational, like. And there were also like prestige B movies that came out of this period as well. I don't know if you guys know Murder by Decree has James Mason in it. It also has Christopher Plummer playing Sherlock Holmes. Uh, it's it's a <laughs> it's a great movie. Uh, you've also got Atlantic City with Burt Lancaster. Such a depressing movie. It's like Atlantic City in the eighties. Like you can't get any more depressing than that. Um, also, The Gray Fox. Not to be confused with the famous character from the Oblivion video game. Anyway. Um, the Silent Partner came out during this this period, and it was like a smash success. Well, it was a, like a big success. Um, it didn't perform like great um, abroad, but it received like a lot of like recognition, and since then has been more discovered. But it definitely like made well over its budget back, and um, with a bunch of A list stars like Elliot Gould, Susanna York. Uh, the cinematography is by Billy Williams, who's fairly notable. He shot Bloody Sunday, and he actually shot the Iraq sequence from The Exorcist, like the the opening sequence. So, a lot of clout. Um, Oscar Peterson, Curtis Hansen, uh, who wrote the uh, the script, actually directed part of this movie, and we'll get to that as we roll through the plot. Um, but he also he wrote like a bunch of movies, like he wrote uh, the uh, the White Dog, I think, which was directed by Sam Fuller, um, and actually it stars the same. The body double has the same dog from that movie. Uh, anyway, weird bit of trivia. I'm I'm rambling, um, but you know, like during this is one of those like prestige uh, tax haven movies that could actually be like held up um, and and sort of appreciated and and 
has sort of enjoyed a, a reputation, I think, since its release. Like it's been rediscovered by a lot of people. It's in the Criterion Collection. It, it's uh, it and it garnered like quite a few awards in its day when it came out. Um, but yeah, that's my that's my spiel about sort of the environment in which this movie came out. It was just a bunch of people trying to save a buck, but they actually made like a great movie. <laughs> Dang, that's so cool, Mitch. Thanks for sharing that. I did not. I did not know that that was a thing. I've heard of the term Canuxploitation before. That's what but, this is. But, this is a Canuxploitation. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that it was so literal. I thought it just mean, like, meant like exploitation films in Canada, which I guess it does, but I didn't know that it had such a deeper meaning of yeah, like, like, taking advantage of, of the taxes at that and, time. And this movie definitely walks the line between a Canuxploitation film and uh, like a prestige movie. Um, yeah, I wouldn't clock it as being um exploitation really without being told not that it doesn't have those elements but it feels of a higher caliber than a lot of those tend to be uh, it still definitely has some knee-jerk like exploitation violence um i, yeah. I think Mar- the, yeah like, i guess the uh spoiler the decapitation is a yeah, little the fish tank de- decapitation so now that we're talking decapitations uh, I can tell you why uh, Daryl Duke stopped directing this movie halfway through. Oh. Is that why? Did you know that? So Curtis Hansen picked up the reins and oversaw the pre-production because Duke, uh, when he was directing this movie, really didn't want to film the scene with the decapitation and the scene in the, the sauna where um, uh, like a teenager is like brutally beaten and raped uh, and almost like to like the brink of death. Um he didn't want to do that and he didn't want to uh, do like the, the fish tank decapitation scene because he thought it it sort of uh, took away from his movie and was too shocking. And the, the book and the 1969 film don't have that. Um, so he didn't want to do it. And because of that sort of uh, difficulty, the investors were like, well, let's just get rid of him. But Elliot Gould had a very fond working relationship with, with Hanson – or sorry, with, um, with Duke – and uh, so that caused like a bit of tension on the set. That is very interesting. It sounds like me and Daryl Duke have very different tastes. I know, yeah. <laughs> uh, that is some of the stuff that I that really uh, got me invested in this movie. Um, of course, me and and Daryl would agree that it's morally reprehensible, if not for a movie. But but within the movie, I was like, that was the sort of stuff that really surprised me about this movie. And and I thought that this was going to be more felt like more like of a, a prestige, like mm-hmm. Oscar winner, uh, um, sort of high class movie, uh, similar to um, maybe like. Uh, um, even like the original Star is Born. Like I know right. this doesn't have the name recognition, but I thought it would it would feel more like that, especially hearing that Christopher Plummer was in it, who I knew was huge. Again, a stage before. actor. He did Shakespeare. Yeah. yeah. Um, so so when uh the first of those big scenes happens with uh with Christopher Plummer assaulting the the young woman, the teenager, I was like, Holy moly, this is not the sort of movie I thought. And I thought by the end it very much felt like an exploitation movie and not mm-hmm. a uh um a prestige yeah. like Oscar chasing movie. And so it has, I was quite it has surprised. Legs. Yeah, but I think we're getting ahead of ourselves because I don't think we've even done the the plot rundown for this movie yet let's hear it um so our movie is set and shot on location in toronto 
which is you know very distinct, especially for the era, because I think so many Canadian cities don't play themselves. Uh, but I'm getting, <laughs> I'm going down another tangent. Rumble in the Bronx, featuring the wonderful, beautiful city of Vancouver, British Columbia. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, but this is a, this is an exception. It's, it's Canada playing itself, and uh, I think that that's, that's great. So it's set in the Eaton Center at like a fictional bank, the Toronto First Bank, and Elliot Gould plays this kind of like lonely. Uh, loser bank teller who doesn't have a lot going on. He doesn't have a lot of confidence. Uh, and he's got like weird hobbies. Like he loves to keep an aquarium. If you like to keep an aquarium, I'm not knocking that. I'm just saying it that sounds like you are. He's made fun of it. Actually, I, ha- I had a fish for many years. How dare you? Anyway, that's not I, an aquarium. That's one fish. Well, I had two. Uh, any more than five fish is weird. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, he, he likes the tropical ones. Like, yeah, but I'm, I'm going to. Come on, guys! I I, I gotta do this. Um, so <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, usually I do this. You've just taken over, so I'm gonna let you just figure this one out. Okay, thank you. He has reason to believe that the bank is that he works at is going to be robbed. He finds this sort of note scribbled, and when he looks at the note, he realizes that there's a lot of like similarities in the in the handwriting to the note of like a mall Santa who's kind of been coming in and out of the store and, and it's observed that he's a mall Santa that doesn't like children and it's odd. And sure enough, the small Santa comes in with a, with a German handgun and uh, robs the, the store. However, our hero played by Elliot Gould is smart enough to have set money aside and give the guy a smaller amount so that he can take the money for himself and run away. So he's essentially knocking off his own bank and making Christopher Plummer's character, the Santa Claus, take the fall. Only uh, things don't really go according to plan and what you get is this uh, really tightly knit thriller set in 1970s Toronto. Yeah. How'd I do? That was great. It set the scene so well, especially for people who haven't seen this movie. I think I think that's a great way to put it. Like Canada is very prominent in the movie, but um what's even more prominent is just like the the crime thriller mystery on mm-hmm. top of it all. So it's it's very accessible uh, even if you're not like a fan of Canadian movies where that sort yeah. of thing sticks there's, out. There's uh there's not a Tim Hortons in sight, but if you would like to make a joke about our money being different colors, you can do that. Yeah, and Mackenzie King, he see him on the fifty. <laughs> you can make fun of him if you want. I mean, you can make fun of anybody. Pretty much all of our PMs. Yeah. None of those people should be there. <laughs> yeah, let's make that clear right now. Um, okay, well, Mitch has done my work for me. I got to put my feet up there, just kind of kick back, you know. It's a lot of work doing that part of the podcast. Thanks. I just made it up as I went. Well, welcome to my world. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there's a few little, uh, you know, subplots with some coworkers and some ladies and whatnot that we'll get into. But, um, you know, I mean, we already know how Mitch feels about the movie. So I'm just going to ask how Liam feels about the movie, I guess. And then we'll just go. From I've been there. dying. Actually, can we say what our prediction was? Oh, yeah. You yeah, because Mitch and Corey watched this movie together in the same room. So they're. Uh... Yeah. They know where they're at. So I think that you ultimately like the movie, but I think that you're probably going to say that the midsection is is a bit slow and feels kind of listless at times. And I think you probably wanted more of that, more of Christopher Plummer and more, uh, more scares. 
Um, I also think that I think uh, to get even slightly more specific that I think that you'll have preferred the movie to stay in its initial mode that was also more like seasonally thematic um, with like the darker, more wintry vibe. But also my big takeaway was like, I think what you were going to like most is sort of the first half that includes a lot more of the menacing kind of Christopher Plummer and the bit more like horror adjacent responses to things at times and building the atmosphere that way. And because the movie does slow down in the middle before ramping up like right at the peak of the end, I think that like you're still going to like it, but I have a very similar take to Mitch. Well, um, I just got to put my legs up for that because you guys did my work for me. You're so sweet. Mitch, uh, you are exactly right. Literally everything you said, that is that is how I feel. Um, and Corey, you make a great point as well um, about the seasonal stuff. I didn't actually consider that while watching the movie. Um I, I, uh, cause I got quite roped in into the mystery at the beginning and I just thought it was kind of quirky and cute that it started off with like Santa Clauses and, and the Christmas song and stuff. But then once I was into the, into the mystery, I, I didn't find myself longing for more of it, but, uh, I'm not going to say that I, I would have, I, I probably would have liked the movie more if, if, if Christmas had been all the way through it like that. Um, uh, but it didn't occur to me at the time. But but yeah, what Mitch said, that is exactly, exactly where I'm at. I really, really liked this movie, but I would have loved it if um, it had what felt to me like more of uh, Christopher Plummer and Elliot Gould uh, just like interacting and uh or even just like thinking about each other. Like I get that for pacing, you don't have to always have them talking to each other in every scene or, or passing each other like in the street or something. Like you don't need to keep reminding us that the movie is about them. But I did feel like in the middle of the movie, what interested me the most was like gone. And and it did feel absolutely a bit listless Mm -hmm. and, and meandering and, um, so much so that like when Christopher Plummer reappears, I was like, oh my gosh, yes, this is the same movie. And now give me, give me more of this. Like, but I, I agree that like, it, it feels like flat in the time that he's not there. But at the same time, I think his absence creates like a, a level of suspense. Like what the detective says, like, how long is he going to be away for there? Like not enough time. So, you know, he's coming back and you know, he's violent and you know, he's like, you don't, you don't really know quite what he's capable of but you have a pretty good idea and you find out in the next act but um yeah i think it's like having his absence and like the fact that there is like an expiration date on it and a short one at that uh i think like heightens the suspense it's kind of like the old thing that um hitchcock said where you let the audience know that there's a bomb under the table and it builds suspense um i think that absence yeah just I think makes his return all the better. That's a great point. And I think um, uh, that totally, that could have happened. It, it didn't come across that way to me. And I think that's because while he was gone, um, I would think that like uh, um, Elliot Gould's character would like be more 
explicitly anxious or or at least maybe he's not anxious because he he proves himself to be quite like a a confident crafty man it's just his he's not as willing to kill as christopher Plummer's character is but he's still like very uh um coming up with like cons and stuff and and they're kind of one-upping each other while the other person isn't around and that's all really cool and so i just i wish that even when they were separate there was i wish there was like something in there that like constantly reminded me that like they're on each other's minds and that uh this is what the heart of the story is whereas i felt like the middle of this movie like i thought it kind of felt like it was from a different movie um there's like multiple different stories in here like you kind of you kind of see uh like john candy's character like get married and then you find out that his like the girl he's seeing also like cheats with him at a christmas party and then she's pregnant with like a baby that's not his and it's like there's like a whole other there's there's another movie in there essentially but yeah yeah yeah. and so i would i would say i would have absolutely absolutely loved this movie if it had been whittled down a bit to be more about the the main storyline because there are quite a bit of subplots here and while it's you know nice to see some of these actors and um you know john candy is great like i i love his presence uh just in general i i think the movie would have been uh packed more of a punch if a lot of those characters went away and there was some rewriting that uh just like did keep me tense the whole way through because there's a lot of really tense thriller stuff in here. Um, and I just didn't feel it all the way through an example of a movie that does this sort of thing in a way that I think this movie would have benefited from is, uh, the hitcher from the early eighties. Have you guys seen that one? I've never seen it. I've heard of it. Heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. So in that one, we've got like C Thomas Howell is, uh, is the, the everyman character. And then we've got Rutger Hauer playing the, uh, the titular hitcher and he's a psychopath and they have a, an encounter at the beginning of the movie that where they each show to the other person, like the kind of person they are. One of them is very evil and one of them, not so much, but, 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 um, our main character there, C Thomas Howell, he is also kind of a fighter and stands up for himself. And then, so the rest of the movie is just about them having, like some chance encounters with other people or they're chasing each other and they're coming into contact and then they're going away from each other again. But the whole movie, it's just like this back and forth fight of, of good versus evil. And um, it all feels like it's like just on one train that's going in a, at a particular destination. And then when it gets there at the end, because that movie also has a brutal, uh, some might say unnecessary slaying of uh a woman um when it gets to that point it's just like holy moly this is where it was going this whole time like what a payoff and it's just like so gnarly and so i think this movie has a lot of those aspects as well and if it had just felt more focused in that middle section i would have loved it all the way through Uh, Mm. but as is i just really like it and there's there's nothing wrong with that. I was very happy to spend my time with it. Now, I am dying to hear what you guys think because uh, you had me pinned down so well. So I'm wondering where you guys fall. I don't have a lot to say that hasn't been said already. Um, I Dang. quite what? It's just been me. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, I mean, I quite liked it. Um, I 
I agree that it gets kind of bogged down in the middle. I think like the aimlessness of the middle section is kind of the point. And so far as like, you know, on the one hand, you're they feel as though they've gotten away with it to a degree. And on the other hand, um, the fact that Christopher Plummer's character can become an afterthought is what kind of gives the return of it some heft return of him. Um, because they're sort of acting as if the problem has been solved and it really hasn't been solved. Um, but I, I think I, I would have liked a little bit more of the presence that Christopher Bowman brings and like the horror of it all. Cause that, that is, that, that is like one of the most brutal performance. Brutal sounds bad. Um, one of the best, like, terrifying performances i've seen in a long time it is a horrifying terrible dude and um i could have stood for more of that but no i think like i think there's some really creative camera work i think all the performances are great i think elliot gould's chemistry with uh susanna york is like off the charts i think his chemistry with um uh uh i have a list give me a sec uh celine lomez is off the charts i like where those stories go the canadian feel is nice um yeah, no huge complaints. Uh, the music's cool. Um, yeah, I wanted it's good. <laughs> I wanted to talk because I mean, I I mentioned like Hitchcock earlier with the bomb under the table, but a lot of this movie like feels uh, very Hitchcockian to me, especially the sequence where he has to get rid of the body, and he does so by hiding it. Uh, in in a rug and then he dangles off the fire escape and that feels like something from the man who knew too much or, or you know <laughs> something like that yeah um another thing also that i kind of um have noticed like after like re- repeat watching of this movie is is kind of like i guess like the sexual subtext and the sexual tension between the two male leads and i think that that's something that's like very much um of like hitchcock's movies probably for the wrong reasons, but I think that that's like also present here. And uh, like Christopher Plummer's character has this sort of like uh, feline and almost like dangerous uh, quality, obviously um, like an animal, but he also has like sort of like a, a sexual ambiguity as well to him. And I think that does he, I don't know. If I, I, I think agree. so. I think he's constantly measuring himself up to Elliot Gould's character and, um, sizing him up and and, and and sort of taking pleasure in in uh, in sort of uh, invading his space and getting the better of him, but also um, I think like there's the, there's the part where he asks like the the girlfriend um, that they're both the both men are seeing like if Elliot Gould is any good in bed and he's I th- I think that there is like a, a dangerous quality and he he has like a very long painted pinky ring and he wears uh, a, a golden anklet and he wears eyeshadow and in the end he shows up in in drag uh, eyeliner yeah sorry eyeliner yeah not eyeshadow yeah. sorry i guess i i didn't notice some of those details to what his character looked like and i was i guess at the time interpreting it more as like um yeah not like a as a measure of like a desirable thing but more just in terms of like being frustrated that there was another presence there mm-hmm. while he was away, like on a much more straightforward basis yeah. than that. Um, but I think through like a 1970s audience scope, I feel like a 1970s audience would probably, I don't know. 
Maybe. Yeah, I guess some of those qualities, at least the visual ones, aren't things I would really think twice about at this point. Yeah. If somebody were doing it. I don't like, know. I, I read a uh, a review by um who is it by? Uh uh Bruce LeBruce, and he like most of that his review is just sort of talking about like he talks a great deal about that sort of like sexual uh conflict going on underneath the surface. And um he again he alludes to, I think he alludes to Hitchcock in it as well. Um but it's but yeah, I, I think it's definitely there. Um, also <laughs> speaking of Hitchcock, apparently Elliot Gould showed him this movie and he absolutely loved it, but this would have been near the end of his life. Um, wow. That yeah. is really cool. That's a, that's a wicked endorsement. I mean, the director, you know, I, I know you guys said he didn't do a whole lot of other stuff, but like, that's one to take to the grave with you. Hey, you made a movie that Alfred Hitchcock liked. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Um, it's weird. I told Mitch earlier, I was worried this was going to happen. But now that we're sitting here to talk about it, I don't have a lot to say um, because it's all just good, you know? Um, It's got, like, it's just fundamentally sound. (laughs) And, um, yeah. Well, how about this, Corey? What did you think about the stuff that uh, the director did not want to put in like those big moments, like the, the decapitation and uh, the assault and stuff. Uh, the decapitation is fucking awesome. It caught me extremely off guard. Um, I was like, I like recoiled in, in shock because I wasn't anticipating it. And I love that. Like they set up the fish tank and like, you notice it, right? You're like, Oh, this guy likes fishes. And he has a fish that one time at the bar. And so, uh, and then when, when things are getting rowdier in the house, in that scene, you see the fish tank there the entire time. And I was like, Oh, she's getting pushed into that fish tank and it's going to shatter. And it'll be, it'll be really cool. It'll be a sick visual. And then that happens, but then they one up it. She's, getting drowned yeah. in the fish tank and then they one-upped it again and i was just like Whoa. yeah it's such an escalation and it's so brutal that it really comes out of nowhere um i also do think that the movie benefits to a degree from having that opening assault scene in it as well just because i don't know necessarily like i can see rather i can see why the movie put that scene there to establish christopher Plummer's character and how dangerous he is i think the performance is good enough that they could have done it other ways however i do think it's effective in that regard it's sort of exploit. it's exploitative as well. yeah that's yeah. more of like if we're gonna go the exploitation angle then that's what that would be um i generally like it uh i think they're really effective scenes um I think, yeah, no, that's that's about it. I don't I don't need to try to go on if there's nothing else to add. I think they're good. <laughs> Do you like both those scenes, Mitch? The violent scenes? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I don't think I don't think the movie would work without them. Um, mm-hmm. It would work, but I don't think it would it would reach the heights that it does. I mean, so much of this movie is also about like a man, um, I guess, discovering himself and kind of like discovering his sense of confidence, albeit for like. <laughs> You know, by doing some bad shit. And I think that, like, morally, Elliot Gould's character, like, is not that great. And kind of there's there's nobody really to, to root for in this movie. But um, I think, like, the movie wouldn't work because it, it shows that what was, like, a sort of a, a playful game. And he, he gets off on, like, um, besting 
uh, Christopher Plummer's character. And then there's just sort of this violent um, punctuation mark. Then it's like, okay, like it's not, this isn't a game of cat and mouse anymore. Or if it is like, it's, it's been turned up to 11% and it's, it's or 11 out of 10 and it's, you know, extremely violent and shocking. And so I don't, yeah, the movie just would not uh, be as like multifaceted. It wouldn't be, um, I think as effective without it. So I think it's a, I think it was ultimately a good idea and it's rare that sort of like, studio meddling where it's like you know we need more like sexual violence and we need more um you know like stuff like that usually that that often works to a movie's detriment but here i think it this movie like definitely walks that line between exploitation and like uh like sort of uh more mainstream prestige movies yeah yeah for sure and i and i i like that it has both i mean i gotta say as much as um I really did like those violent scenes. I, I think part of the reason I liked them so much was because of the juxtaposition with the yeah. rest of the movie. I mean, we know that this uh, Christopher Plummer's character is evil. Um, and so, like, because we see him do what he does to that woman at the beginning of the movie, you know, just like disgusting stuff and then and feeling no remorse about it at all even when Mm -hmm. the other men there are like yo what are you doing um that sets up that this is the sort of dude that would like decapitate a woman with a fish tank but then when it happens i'm so surprised and so so i like the pacing there and also um there's a whole lot of dialogue scenes in this movie that like still had me on the edge of my seat and like just loving the back and forth. Some of that comes from um, Christopher Plummer and Elliot Gould's characters talking. Like I, I love the set piece of um, the telephone booth outside of uh, Elliot's um, like mm-hmm. second or third story window and they can see each other as they're talking on the phones. Um, I love, uh, there's a whole lot of like cool, like, 70s relics in this movie where it's just like tied to the era like the way the banking works and stuff (laughs) yeah Um, yeah. it's like and 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 it adds to the plot and it makes it so that if you remade this movie i think the premise is so strong that i would love to see a remake of this movie but also the 70s version like works so well um so i love those that talking scene and i also really love um in the first half hour after the robbery happens the police are questioning elliot gould's character about like why did you not set off the alarm immediately and he's saying oh you know i just i didn't think of it and they say well uh he didn't have a gun and and he is and then he has to say well he told me he had a gun through the notes and like i just i love that idea of um uh this simple guy who is like in over his head and he can't go to the police because he has done something deceptive as well. I love movies like that. Like another one is a simple plan by Sam Raimi about like these three guys that just find a bag of cash and decide to split it between each other. And then when uh, the people who the cash belongs to um, start uh, looking for it, then they uh, now they're in too deep to, to, they just have to try to get away with it and so i love that idea um and i also love the idea of like um before i realized what elliot gould was doing because it took me a good long while this this the central premise in this movie of uh 
Elliot Gould's character uh, storing away some of this money because he knew that the bank was going to get robbed. And so he's become complicit in this robbery. That is so strong, but it's presented in such a, a clever um subtle way at least that's how it came across to me so i didn't realize what yeah. was happening for a long time and There's i just no thought explain. exactly and so when these police were questioning him about like why he did what he did it just came across to me like this dude who was like panicking because he was he was uh um threatened with a gun and in situations like that like you don't know how you would react and and it's that thing of like people tend to watch movies and they say oh this character should just do this and and the killer would never get you and it seems so obvious but when it comes down to it if someone like questions you as to why you did something in a stressful situation you wouldn't really be able to explain it and so i i loved a whole lot of that dialogue as well and um there's just a whole lot of stuff in this movie that kept me that that really impressed me and, and kept me uh, on the mm-hmm. hook I think it's I think it's also like a we've barely talked about the comedy in this movie. But it is it is a very funny movie, I think, as well. Um I always be it the laughs are kind of sparse near the end, but uh like <laughs> I don't know, John Candy like being like really drunk, falling asleep in his chair while he gets another highball at the party or um I don't know. There's like some good gags. There's also definitely some like uh chauvinistic gags that haven't aged so well uh or lines of dialogue from the men like especially like the the guy who plays like the boss at the bank like he's he's such an asshole and kind of like a perv too um yeah when elaine comes in in disguise i think it's the boss and one other guy yeah and it's just like wow just like man the fucking 70s huh yeah some of the stuff they're saying is is not good i will say i do like how they managed to generally avoid that i really like um louise the who like is the new hire at the bank that gets married to john candy she's not really doing a whole lot there but i really i it's just very charming like it doesn't feel like it's like oh and this person's an airhead and that's meant to be mean it's just like now this person's just kind of night just kind of pleasant yeah and i i like that like there are flashes of people who are not nearly as cynical or downtrodden as some of these other people are and i think that helps clarify the kind of people that we are dealing with yeah albeit, like and here's what a normal person is like there is an element of cynicism in their relationship because like she's having a baby with like the other guy that she saw at the party and um is she yeah oh, it, I don't remember they announced that. that she's uh that she's pregnant after the after uh, he and john after she and john get um get married so there is there is like an element of cynicism there where you can kind of speculate about whose kid it is we were probably talking over the movie we probably were um yeah that that was pretty Uh, subtle too yeah the movie has a habit of like not delicate hand it's extremely subtle um when it when it wants to be and then it's also like an exploitation film with no subtlety at other times (laughs) well and it spends a lot of time uh with just talking in mm-hmm. the middle which is because it's that and all of that is just dancing around what's happening for the most part or intentionally obtuse like every conversation that miles and julie have like trying to get a read on these people mm-hmm. and what their relationship is to one another like they don't even know and like no. it gets increasingly convoluted <laughs> and like he's clearly using it as leverage for himself within the kind of like 
weird hole that he's dug himself into and she's just sort of like she's she's quite mean to him but then she seems to like him quite a bit as well yeah and like by the end of course they're on the same team she puts two and two together with what's up with the bag and whatnot yeah i mean like it's such a it's such a bizarre relationship hmm. uh what was i gonna say um just like building on like the the point i made earlier about like the the sort of like the the sexual like subtext between like the the dudes i think like like julie's character between the dudes yeah julie's character i think like also plays like a role in that because there's like there's like the night where elliot gould like first realizes he's being like blackmailed and that sequence is masterful but earlier in the evening he has Susanna york's character over and then because he's being like blackmailed he like gets rid of her and she's kind of confused and she's like i don't know what's going on your head in your head right now and i i don't want to know and there's so there's like kind of like an implication that like he might not be into her or or, or she thinks that he's like uh, morally criticizing her for doing what they did um i think that kind of like builds on it i think but ultimately her character doesn't have like that much to do and her her arc is like very confusing but it's, it's, Susanna it's york a, is a, just it's a squiggly line yeah but like it, it doesn't really yeah yeah but Susanna york's character i think is so uh like sophisticated and and sort of charismatic and uh, that I think she can do it, and I, I love Susanna York's movies. I think she's she's great. Interestingly, <laughs> she played Superman's mom in, in the same year. Yeah, and Elliot Gould has a Superman lunchbox, but um, she's also really really good in Images, which I think I mentioned a few episodes ago, uh, which is a Robert Altman horror movie actually from the seventies. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, another great moment of black comedy. Uh, in this movie is uh, right at the climax when uh, Harry is like dying from the gunshot after trying to get the remainder of the money in the mall an elderly security guard shoots him and then and then as Harry is dying he's trying to say that uh, Miles gave him the money um, and and the security guard says what do you expect him to give you his own money and it's just like it's uh, it's like sort of a it's like kind of sad as well yeah. because even though Miles is, isn't nearly as reprehensible a person as Harry is, like he he was sort of complicit in this thing, and so there and you're thinking, oh, maybe there's a chance in this movie that they're gonna catch on to Miles and that he's gonna have to you know deal with this in some way or another. Like maybe he'll get off because of how he was uh, working to get. Uh, harry implicated or something but but it just adds up to nothing and it's just like harry doesn't even get that retribution the last thing the last thing that he tries to make happen as he knows he's dying is that he can get miles in trouble and and even that doesn't happen so it's it's kind of funny in a sick way i liked that too Mm -hmm. i think that that final death scene is fucking incredible um yeah I gotta like, say, two. I would like to uh, propose two new Canadian heritage minutes. One of them is Christopher Plummer in drag walking into a bank with a gun. The other one with a P thirty eight, no less, like the iconic bad guy gun of of the. I mean, the Nazis carried them. <laughs> the other one, it, that yeah, that was a callback to the Sound of Music or Gone with the yeah. Gun. 
fuck. <laughs> I don't know. I got one of those names wrong. I got confused in my brain. Um, you know the one. And I would also like to propose as a second uh, sort of follow-up Canadian Heritage Minute, uh, Christopher Plummer in drag getting shot multiple times and falling down an escalator. Hell yeah. Also, like I'd take Christopher Plummer dressed as Santa Claus firing at a bank guard on an escalator. The, trifec- well. the trifecta. Yeah, if you will. I don't know. Just like those sequences shot inside the Eaton Center, like having been there, like there is something like kind of like shocking about seeing it where it's like, holy, holy shit, I've been here. And there's like a, I don't know, like a fictional stage of violence being recreated here. Like it's, it's kind of, there's always an added level to anything when a movie is shot in a place you've been. Yeah. Like that's always a weird element to it. I haven't had it happen to me that many times. Like, I'm sort of like I'm talking out of my ass to a degree, mm-hmm. but it is always kind of strange to be like, oh, weirdly familiar place mm-hmm. where something deeply unusual happens um, is definitely there. Uh, I really like the shot where um, Julie and Miles go back to their apartment and the camera stays outside and they're walking up the stairs and you can see them in the stairwell. Mm-hmm. And the camera pans over to the apartment, you see the light flick on and then they go inside. It's a good shot. I love the I love the whole sequence where where Christopher Plummer is outside for the first time out with the phone booth and then he talks to Elliot Gould to the mail oh, slot. Man. Like that suspense is so tight and so excellent. And then all of a sudden he turns the tables by telling him to come upstairs and then he goes downstairs and calls him from the phone booth and tells that's him to go so fuck himself. Good. That was it, so oh, good. yeah, that's amazing. Like that is that like scene was peak, peak of this of like one of the best parts of this movie uh, is that I, I got to say, um, I think what Christopher Plummer has given me in this movie is a little bit like it's a little bit Night of the Huntery to me. A little just bit like, like just not obviously one to one for a lot of reasons, but like there's something about it that like just as we're sitting here talking about it, i'm like yeah that's sort of the energy that i'm getting kind of like a it's social like, dangerous pariah that, that yeah uh yeah very quietly menacing like he's not gonna just come out with it if he doesn't have to so it's very like understated it's kind of like an animal like an animal instinct like he's yeah he's uh he's dangerous and he kind of moves like a like a big cat and it's like, like he's cat people like he's poised like kind of ready to, to <laughs> kill or that he could kill but he also like is gonna like play with his uh with his prey before he eats it like that's like the game of cat and mouse with elliot gould he's the cat and elliot gould's the mouse although but the he, mouse for, wins for the cat i was gonna say the cat's constantly losing the entire movie well you th- yeah i mean elliot gould is smarter it's, i mean tom and jerry right <laughs> Right. But, uh, yeah. Because yeah. Elliot Gould, the interesting thing is because I very much didn't necessarily think he was going to succeed. I, not that this was going to be a morality tale, but it was going to be one of the ones where just like, mm-hmm. hey, nobody wins. This is a zero sum A cynical game. 70s movie. Yeah. But yeah. no, nah, Elliot Gould gets away and the girl is on his team and they just ride off into the sunset, um, which was unexpected, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> um, That kind of like conclusion to the story being positive as insofar as positive would be the aptly describing word um but uh yeah man like just an odd not i know it's an odd choice honestly that everything works out yeah it's a it's a weird choice but it's a satisfying one do you know mitch if in the book or the original if that's how it ends as well no no it doesn't end that way because Uh, like i yeah you. i don't think so go ahead 
Like, I know it doesn't have all the violence, and I think it doesn't end that way as well. I, although I haven't read the book, so I don't know. Yeah, I just if, if know it what doesn't, I know from my... if it doesn't have the violence, I'm I'm wondering how it does end because if that violence isn't in it, it, it might make me think that it would still have like a a happy ending where the bad guy dies. But also. I'm thinking that like if this movie had been made by someone who was more enthusiastic about showing the dark stuff in this movie, you know, like Daryl Dukes, you were saying he didn't want those two violent scenes in the movie. And I'm sure he like wanted the middle of the movie, uh, which um, I found a bit like meandering and 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 less impactful i'm sure like that's what he was going for because it's he wanted the the middle of that movie to be like that not that he wanted it to be like meandering or boring but he wanted the middle of the movie to be like that and so that makes me think that he would want an ending that's happy but if this movie had been made by someone who uh was more enthusiastic about that violent stuff maybe the movie would be would have ended like Corey was saying with like cynical 70s-ness and and they all lose and uh that would have been kind of cool to me too i like the ending of this movie i thought it was i thought it was funny and cute but also i i wouldn't have minded if the movie had not only um had more of those cat and mouse scenes like that great one you described mitch where it goes from the from the phone booth up to the apartment back down to the phone booth like just stuff like that where you tease a whole bunch of tension out um of this uh of this little apartment location i think more stuff like that could have been done and if that had happened then i think the the ending of the movie also could have been like a bit more punchy and satisfying even though i do like the ending Mm-hmm. also like I, I have like zero faith in their relationship like lasting <laughs> but yeah I don't, I don't even understand their dynamic at yeah. all like it's so i think there's a there's a greater than zero chance that julia recognized the chance to cash in or julie rather and like is willing to ride that wave you know especially mm-hmm. if you want to take the cynicism angle a bit because like what do they have going for this relationship right like he's impossible to read he's being weirdly opportunistic about it she is equal parts interested and willing to completely ravage him with sick one-liners about him being a terrible person like when that's deserved honestly he, he's well, sure. bad to her. And he, he is being a real piece of shit but like that's what i mean where it's like where does this go it feels like the end of the graduate where they're sitting on the bus and you're just like oh we did it huh <laughs> hmm now what like that's what it feels like except the cn tower is there yeah <laughs> it is it, it is like satisfying to see him get away with it though it is yeah i think it could have worked the other way but uh it's definitely satisfying i didn't want to see christopher Plummer win like i would rather see like maybe like an I ending like, i don't mean by other way i mean they both lose have you seen have you seen like the killing by 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 kubrick like no. where <laughs> I don't want to spoil the ending of that movie, but it, it has. I mean, I think I might I might be able to suss it out based on what you've said. Up it to did. This point. It did come out in the fifties, but uh, it just has. Yeah, it's a seventy-year-old movie. Yeah. I think you can spoil it. It. I think I maintain it's like one of the best endings to a heist movie ever. But like they pretty much like knock off this racetrack and and have all the money and, and bills and like the suitcase and they're they're on like the tarmac getting onto an airplane when this woman's dog breaks loose and like knocks the like the the suitcase off of like a cart or whatever and it springs open because it's too full of money and this is when like the propeller plane is start, starts its engines and it blows the money like all over the tarmac and it's just like this like 
Like you got away with it and yet meaningless, like depressing ending where they get away with the crime and but get nothing out of it. Actually, I think they get apprehended by the cops after that. But it is, I think, like one of the best endings in heist movie history. Speaking of heist movie history, Elliot Gould's in the Oceans movies too. <laughs> yeah, which I haven't seen like any of. Oh, okay. So I did not know that until today. I'm not a big I haven't seen that many heist movies. I love heist movies. Yeah, I saw I, Thief I a couple weeks ago. Either. That movie fucking rules. Yeah. I mean, this movie is um, kind of a heist movie. I mean, Wikipedia describes it as a heist movie. Yeah. <laughs> They're heisting. Interesting. A Christmas yeah, I, heist. I don't know if I'd put heist on as like the thing on Wikipedia, but it's definitely you know you can it's 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 yeah. not inaccurate. You're gonna have to take that one up with Mrpedia. I can. Heist. I can edit it right. Heist isn't the word I would use. I would say it's Elliot Crime. Gould giving himself a well-deserved Christmas present from his employer without their consent. It's not a Christmas present. Is it embezzlement? To, to, I, mean, <laughs> I was going to just try to tie back into my joke that this isn't a Christmas movie, but frankly, that tanked once and it will tank again. Yeah, try me, Corey. Um, I gotta say, a heist movie that I love of, of the few heist movies I've seen is a movie called... Um, uh, bad genius and it's from I think it's from South Korea um, it sounds like a title from, that doesn't translate well to English yeah it, it's, from, <laughs> it's from uh Thailand it's called okay. bad genius uh, from 2017 and it's about these students um, in high school who uh, find the smart girl in their class and they all start working together to cheat on their uh tests in order to get into good schools and so the whole movie is just about like them uh gradually cheating on tests and the way they do it gets more extreme and um uh more complex and the stakes get higher as like they're now uh getting into different schools and like their parents are like all stoked about how they're doing on tests and stuff and and every like exam sequence is shot like a heist movie where like they're kicking an eraser like from one desk to another or like they're like kind of like making motions at the other person that shows what the answer should be on this test and like it it's shot just like like it's the highest stake thing you've ever seen in your life like as if it were like millions of dollars and there's That's like lives on the line school, and man. stuff. But but it's just people taking tests. It's really cool. I think you guys would love it. That does sound like a good movie. I love a good heist movie. There's just like countless ones that are so good. Like the I like like well, the I want, new the, I need a recommendation. You know what we could do? We could do the original Oceans movie because not too many people have seen that. That's true. The reverse. The one, the one with the Rat Pack in the cast. Like you've got Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., and Frank Sinatra. <laughs> That's true. It's kind of we, long, and I honestly don't love it. But they well, also they made a newer one. Right? That idea. <laughs> they did like uh, Oceans with like an all woman cast. Yeah, yeah. Elliot Ocean Gould's in that eight. too. Wow. Yeah, I could do that. Can't believe they made thirteen of those. Um, last thing about the silent partner <laughs> that, I, that I have to offer, but by all means, if you guys have more, keep going. But, uh, a lot of naked women in this movie, hey? That, Is there a lot? There's I like, thought so. There's three or... F- that's a, that's a good amount. Three or four, maybe? Um, and that yeah, made it feel... Four. 
that made it feel more like an exploitation movie as well. Just like basically every actress ends up being naked. Like even Susanna York, who uh um, she? Yeah. yeah, dude. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh it's she almost has a love scene with uh Miles and then he calls it off oh, because he says we don't yeah. think we should be doing this and um and that surprised me as well just because like um you know she's more of like the humble character and like so yeah that was kind of an interesting wrinkle too that just like made i don't know if if a lot of mainstream movies in the 70s also just have naked people if they were more liberal yeah. or if that is more exploitative, i would say you've got a lot of nudity cool. in 70s movies yeah um full frontal too in this movie. yeah oh my gosh yeah that's that's how they kind of went back then it was you know free love and they're going for it it was sort of very common Nudity, both like male and and female in the seventies, and then I, then you kind of see a return to conservative values in the in the eighties with movies, and they kind of in some ways they walked away from it. At least like mainstream prestige movies did in a lot of ways. Yeah, I guess like the MPAA would have been a lot created Reagan in the eighties, yeah. right? And they started cracking down. So I yeah. was mostly gonna blame Ronald Reagan. Go for it, blame him for everything, man. Uh, <laughs> didn't we have a portrait of Ronald Reagan? We always talked, we mused about having did one. Did we ever actually get it? We never did. Okay. <laughs> we had a, we to, had a. To be clear, I need to make unequivocally clear that that one is going to be ironic. Oh, completely. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, fuck Ronald Reagan. Fuck Ronald Reagan. <laughs> yeah. And, and his friends. <laughs> fuck you and your friends. I mean, he had lots of friends. He was friends with actors that I like. I mean, he was married to Jane Wyman, who was in uh, Magnificent Obsession. And a few other movies that I want to watch in the show. But, uh, yeah. Fuck Ronald Reagan. That was before Nancy. The, uh, the, the moral of this story is fuck Ronald Reagan mostly. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think, uh, I don't know, Silent Partner's just really good. Sometimes it's that simple, man, you know? Yeah, there's a lot, a lot to love here. I'm so yeah. glad you both liked it. I was oh like that shot of them with the top down driving down the four oh one. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, and like that part where like the, the top like blows back because he's like, Oh, can't go over forty. Oh, I mustn't go over forty. An <laughs> and that that was another instance of of me being like, Oh man, this movie is so seventies. Like now we don't really have that have issue. speed limits. <laughs> no, we have everybody the... goes as fast as they want. Autobahn everywhere, baby. Uh Autobahn roll out is that anything <laughs> isn't that the new covid variant okay that's enough <laughs> <laughs> uh boys what do we got oh did we pick a oh, we do, uh, tell, well, tell me Corey, uh, why isn't this a christmas movie um i was just trying to come up with a funny joke just trying to stir the pot, huh? Yeah, mostly. Glad that yeah. hadn't just died. Okay. <laughs> I mean, like, I also think that people who say uh, Die Hard or a Christmas is a Christmas movie are just trying to be funny. Um, like, there's a difference between a movie being set at a time of year and a movie being about that time of year. I think this, if you're talking about like val- like Christmas values, this movie has none of them. Yeah, a, a Christmas movie has some level of what is widely agreed upon as Christmas values. Yeah, yeah, and I think like I I do love Christmas movies like that, but I also think there's value in like getting away from that, like that Christmas movies like have to like have like 
largely like Christian ideals yeah. of like being close to family and stuff. And like, notions like, of giving, you. right? Yeah, like come on, like that's just that's some to quote Black Christmas two thousand six, Corey. That's just some pagan bullshit. Yeah, well, and, and it's it's tough because like I I'm more willing to describe something like Black Christmas. I guess 2006 more than calling it pagan bullshit's kind of bullshit because it's it's Judeo-Christian origins. But anyway, I I might be misquoting. Maybe she didn't say that. But uh, I would be more willing to call something like that a Christmas movie just because it's tied to the holiday a lot more directly. Like it has to be thematically consistent with or directly tied to the given holiday. Mm -hmm. I think to really categorize. Well, yeah. I I haven't seen Die Hard, but this has to be more Christmassy than Die Hard, right? Like this is like the Nakatomi Plaza. Right yeah, but but Christmas, uh, it's Christmas the whole time in Die Hard. Yeah, but it's uh, Christmas for half of this movie. So like this movie, I think is like the opposite of Christmas values, and I think playing it against that is a good thing. Right, I, I'm this not disagreeing with too. any I'm, of that. I'm just saying that doesn't make it a Christmas movie. Like no, a, I mean I don't think Christmas it is, but movie, I think it, quote unquote is a really specific thing. I don't think it's a Christmas movie completely, but I think there's enough Christmas in it that I think it qualifies for our show. Yeah. I okay. I didn't even notice the time jump. When is it not Christmas anymore in this movie? Are you when kidding? there's not snow? And when, when his dad to, dies. When they go to a funeral and it's summertime? Holy shit. No, the, I didn't even This is like a, a wedding at a beach. On the mind. Yeah, Did you watch this on your phone? Beach. Yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> you listen to this like an audiobook? That's crazy. So he was after you him for like half a year? video for a living. He went to jail. Oh, oh, yeah. So he was in jail the whole time, and then he went, and they live large, and they're like, oh, we won, we succeeded. And then he gets out so of jail, and he's like, oh, shit, I have to deal with this whole jail situation all over again. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, Corey. I write described video for a living. So when I'm <laughs> off the clock, sometimes it's just nice to vacuum and watch movies with my eyes closed while I do it. <laughs> Honestly, fair. Honestly, I respect it. Um, yeah, in that case, you're absolutely right, Corey. It's like 50% a Christmas movie. Okay, I'm glad we've tied this loose end off. Fuck, he after, already said I won I, earlier. He said I after, won. And... After I said he won and then almost decided to just uh, cut it entirely. Now it's got to stay. I mean, that, that's all. That's for this, all. For the that, prestige. That's all Liam, you had to baby. say. I mean, when I, you, when I asked I, you. You watched the movie. Yeah, but when I, when and I asked you. what I said you, was the whole thing doesn't take place at Christmas. Now, your first response was, why isn't this a Christmas movie? Just because you were trying to stir up a bit. But really, it no, should be... No, that's not what I said at the beginning of the episode. It's what I said just now because I had resigned myself to losing. <laughs> we broke him down. <laughs> he was a broken man. Uh, yes! I liked it better when you were, when you lost. Absolutely, yes! <laughs> All right, so it's, it's up to Corey as to whether he's going to cut that part out to make him a loser or include it to make Look, him a I'm winner. a loser regardless of whether that's in or out. Let's not get carried away. All right, Corey, I think you were you were trying to say we got to pick a movie for next week, and I say that that's on you, Corey. It's your pick. Are you watching Santa, Santa vs. Snowman 2? What is Santa vs. Snowman 2? I don't actually know if there's a second one, but Santa vs. Snowman was like a half-hour animated short in which Santa fights a war with Snowman. A war? Yeah, a war. Does Santa do war? Santa wages war in this movie. He I should really I'll... be brought before a tribunal for his crimes against snow people. I thought you were going to say I should be brought to a tribunal for my crimes of not knowing Christmas movies. 
Well, you don't know what Christmas movies are, but that's another story. That's not true. <laughs> that's that's patently false. The problem is I, I don't have another suggestion that's Christmas related. You don't have to you make up your mind right now. And then just edit it in when you choose. Hello. This is Editing Corey. We are going to watch a very Harold and Kumar Christmas. It's the John Cho Assance. Uh, Mitch, do you have anything you'd like to plug? Are you cheering for like the end of the movie? He's gone. He can't respond to you. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, Liam, do you have anything you'd like to plug? Yeah, you can find my film writing alter ego, Graham the Haunted Marshmallow, on Twitter and Letterboxd. My username is Graham the Mallow. And uh, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Mr. Corey Price, and you can listen to the other podcasts that I do about Mortal Kombat, Ephemera. <laughs> Uh, with our friend Neil called MK Podquest. You can find all of that at mkpodquest.com. And with all that out of the way, thank you once again for listening to this episode of They Made Another One. You can find us all over the internet on Twitter at They Made Another, which is all one word, and on Letterboxd at T-M-A-O. You can find episodes on Anchor, Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Breaker, and everywhere else as They Made Another One. You can reach us via email at tmaopodcast at gmail.com with recommendations for future episodes, questions, comments, and oh boy, um, your favorite Canadian Heritage Minute. That'll be fun. The best Canadian Heritage Minute is the Halifax Explosion one. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> Thank you, Mitch. Um, our fantastic thumbnail art is done by Jade Dickinson. You can find on Instagram at Jade Sketches. With all of these Spotify wrapped announcements, thank you all for listening over the last year. We'll, we'll have that whole conversation again in a couple of weeks, but uh, it means a lot that you guys are always checking us out and sharing us around and taking a taking a listen, seeing what we got going on. And we're going to keep doing that next week so you can come back here and we'll have a very Harold and Kumar Christmas. Ready? And oh, they made another one?